turn this evening in the Word of God to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, Thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. The text that we consider from this word of God this evening is verse 4. Against thee, the only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the words that we have read, the inspired words that we have read, are the confession of a repentant sinner. In this case, that repentant sinner, as we read in the heading, is David. And the sin, the specific sin that he is confessing, is, again, as we read in the heading, the sin that was related to his adultery with Bathsheba and subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah. What we learn, therefore, about 
repentance and confession in this psalm is significant. In fact, no understanding of confession or repentance and also forgiveness can be found without examining closely this particular psalm and this particular confession. We learn that there's a close relationship, so close between confession and repentance that there is no confession or there is no repentance without confession. We learn also that there is a close relationship between confession and forgiveness, that in fact it's an essential aspect of it. Without confession there is no forgiveness of sins. So even in the beginning, David begins by pleading the mercy of God. He doesn't plead his confession or even his repentance, and yet he asks for, on the mercy of God, the forgiveness of his sins, for he confesses his sins. I acknowledge my transgressions. What we learn from the psalm is an essential element of confession, which itself is an essential element of repentance, is the confession of sin against God. This confession of sin against God, which is the heart of our text, is what teaches that which makes sin so great, that which makes sin sin, is that it is sin against God. We learn here in the psalm too that this is essentially what makes sin against the neighbor sin. Sin against the neighbor is sin because it is sin against God. Even more striking about the passage is that it is a confession of sin only against God. There is here not simply a confession of sin and a confession of sin to God and about God, but the psalmist says, this is the only one whom I have sinned against. There's a reason for this, as we're going to see this evening. But one of the reasons is because this is not only the confession of a repentant man versus the confession of an unrepentant man, which is basically the confession of the natural man. What we have here is the confession of a child of God repentant in his sin versus what we might confess as a natural man, as a person who might perhaps notice that we also sin. We, simply as human beings, are liars. We're only interested in what others think. We're only interested in what we've done to others and how they receive us. When it comes to confession, we think about our neighbors. We think about our neighbor first. Did he not also sin, or did not she also sin? Did not they contribute to my sin? Maybe we're interested in their forgiveness, that they may forgive us. But that wouldn't be repentance, not as such. Not only does the repentant sinner confess his sin to God and about God, but he does confess his sin is against God only. Consider with me this evening confessing sin against God only. We notice in the first place the reality of that. Then secondly, the significance of that. And then lastly, the purpose
This confession teaches us a great deal about ourselves, about the nature of sin, about repentance, and about confession. And when it comes to confessing sin to God and what there is to learn, one of the questions that we must ask is this, is what the psalmist David says here true? Is it true that he sinned only against God? Or is this simply hyperbole? Was it simply hyperbole when he said, against thee, thee only? Was David saying, perhaps, while well, he sinned also against his neighbor, but he sinned mainly against God, so he just simply used that word only, but he didn't really mean it? We may ask those questions because they're obvious ones. The sin that David is referring to here, obviously, is his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then his murder of her husband, a man who was greatly trusted by David, an amazing man. He murdered him. And may not we say, did not David sin also against Uriah and Bathsheba, did not he defile his wife and take that man's life? Did he not sin against Israel, all Israel? He was their king. He was their judge. He was the one who represented them and was called to judge righteously. Was he not a bad example before all of Israel? And was not he the occasion for the enemies to mock the nation and their love of God or their confession of God? So how in the world can it be true that he sinned only against God? We may especially ask that question because we understand that confession is owed to the neighbor against whom we sin. Perhaps we immediately think here when we read this, isn't this even a little bit offensive? Offensive to what he had done to Uriah and Bathsheba. Why doesn't he even bring it up? We would ask that question rightly even. Perhaps you, like me, have had someone sin against us before and maybe we've talk to them, and the response to us is, well, I already confess my sin to God. What they mean is, get lost. I have nothing to say to you, not really. It's happened before that someone who has sinned terribly against another individual in the congregation, when asked to confess to them, may say, well, the church heard my confession. We know, in fact, that one sign of repentance, even a requirement of repentance, is that one confesses their sin against the neighbor whom they sinned against. Consistories require that before they declare someone reconciled to the church. Sometimes it's even done publicly. This is what we would expect as those who are sinned against and we would expect to do if that's what we had done. So again, we have to ask the question, is this true? Answer, yes. We may not simply explain away this word of God. It is not hyperbole. And that's what we do when we might immediately read this and say, well, didn't he sin against Uriah too? Didn't he sin with Bathsheba? 
truth is that this word of God is true, and it's true even though we also recognize that we sin against the neighbor. And how do we reconcile that by this understanding that our so-called sins against the neighbor are sins only because they're against God? The fact is, what we do against the neighbor that we would call sin, that we would expect someone to confess to the neighbor, is sin only because it's against God, because it's against God's word. If it's not against God, then it's not sin. If the murder of Uriah and his adultery with Bathsheba were not sins against God, then they were no sins. They were no injury to the neighbor at all. If there's not sins against God, there's no need for confession. There's no need for forgiveness. Do we not see the truth of this in everyday life? Wherein there's acknowledgement and service of no other God but self? Do we not recognize that when the world lives the way that it lives and people behave the way they behave exactly because they are not sins against God? Oh, they may be violations of the law. They may be violations that would land somebody in jail or get in trouble, come with fines, perhaps some sort of public notoriety But the main issue why the world lives the way it lives is it will not acknowledge that it sins in its behavior against God. If it were not against the law, it's nothing. Even though God and his law would condemn that behavior. This is why man cannot condemn abortion or the vile sin of homosexuality because it is in their mind not against God and especially not against God only. This confession of the psalmist teaches that it is the very fact that our behavior is against God that makes it wicked, that makes it vile, and that makes it evil. If it's sin, simply how I define it. If it's simply sin, how you see it, or I see it. If even when I acknowledge that I've done some sort of wrong, and all I'm interested in, and all I'm concerned about is how it affects you, or what you did affects me, then we will never see it for what it is, as sin. And we only see it as sin when it's against God. This is This is what made David's sin so vile, so wicked. It was a sin and sin against God. That is, it was an attack upon God. It was rebellion against God. David went to war with God. He treated God as an enemy. He did battle with the perfections of God. He attempted to dethrone God and destroy God. That's what sin is. His violation of the marriage bed was a violation of the holiness of God in an attempt to sully God's own name and drag God's name through the dust. When he did that, he said to God, I don't care what you think. This is right in mine own eye. This is what I want. What you want makes no difference whatsoever. When he snuffed out Uriah's life, David had directly attacked God who gave that life. It was an assault on God's own power, God's own sovereignty. That's what all sin is. It doesn't matter what the commandment is. It doesn't matter really what it is. And as much 
as God is the one who makes the neighbor and gives him his life, when we murder that neighbor, whether it be with a knife or with our tongue, we have murdered God. We've gone after God. When we take the neighbor's property, when we take the neighbor's name, when we take the neighbor's wife, when we even covet his goods, the evil and the wickedness of that, it is God who gave them their wife and their goods and their name. This is what we ourselves must acknowledge and confess about our sins. This is what true confession of sin is. Oh, we may acknowledge a lot of things about our behavior. We may even use that word. And never have confessed that sin whatsoever exactly because we have not confessed and refused maybe even to confess that what I did was against God and God only. Our sins against our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors, whoever they may be, if their sins only against the brother or against the neighbor or against the sinner, they're really nothing to us. But confess now that what I did to you was a sin against God and only against God that changes everything. When we speak evil about the neighbor, we're speaking evil about God. When we murder the neighbor's life, we're taking the life that God gave. When we disrespect the office that God gave, all of them sin against God only. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. There's something remarkable about this, actually. That true confession of sin, as it were, takes the human person from one's own human person to the other human persons that we've sinned against and basically puts them out of sight. Confession is where the sinner stands before God and God only and says, I did this. Doesn't matter what it was to my neighbor, but I slandered you. I lied to you. I took the life that you gave. That is what confession of sin is. Now why is this important? Why is this significant? Is this some sort of box, as it were, to check off? And the answer is no, it's integral to confession, and that for a reason. You see, it's only when the sinner recognizes and confesses that his sin is only against God that he will ever truly confess his sin to the neighbor and seek forgiveness from God as well as the neighbor. It's essential to that. It's necessary for that. You see, it's only when we confess that our sin is against God and God only that we realize the guilt that comes along with sin, that we know the heavy burden of that guilt. And it's only when we know and feel the heavy burden of that guilt that we will turn to God to be relieved of it. To remove that heavy burden that's crushing us and taking us under. Otherwise, we remain in our sin. We are quite comfortable in our sin. In other words, we will never turn from it and seek forgiveness in God. That happened with David. 
David knew full well he had sinned against his neighbor. He knew full well he had murdered Uriah. He knew full well he had offended Israel even. He knew, he knew his general, who was the means he used to murder Uriah, knew all about this. He probably knew the people even were gossiping about it. He knew Bathsheba knew. But for a whole year, he never confessed his sin. Oh, there was an acknowledgement of it, an understanding of it. He does talk about the heavy burden that he felt. He talks about the bones that thou hast broken and other such things. But the fact is, it's not until he acknowledges that what he did, he did against God alone, that he turns to God and pleads his mercy. It's only when Nathan comes and says, David, David, you sinned against God and brought to him the reality through David's own words and by that deserve to die. But David confesses his sin against God. It's evident when in the confession of the text there is an expression of that guilt that comes out when he says, and done this evil in thy sight. That's David expanding somewhat that he says. It's David expressing this reality that he hasn't simply violated some sort of external code, trespassed in merely an external sense, but he recognizes that he has incurred guilt, that what he has done is evil, evil that must be judged, and judged only by God. That's similar to his opening words also. There's a reason for this. Because it's only when we confess our sin against God that we in the first place have an awareness that not only is God the offended party, but God is the one who judges our deeds. It is God who judges our deeds and determines right or wrong, true or false. It is God who then, first of all, sees them. You see, that's part of the problem, isn't it? When we sin, or we refuse to confess our sin, at least rightly and genuinely and truly. The problem is, is that we have imagined God doesn't see. And we imagine God doesn't see because we have not confessed our sins, that our sins are against only God. When we confess that they are only against God, we are saying, and it is God that is seen. We imagine our sins are hidden or hidden such that they have no earthly consequence. Again, all we're concerned about is what others think and what others see and what others judge and what others know. It's when we turn to God and say, I have sinned against God, that we show we recognize the reality, and it is God who has seen. God saw. God saw not only what I do in private, even those sins that I, and there are many, may imagine I can engage in because after all they really don't harm anyone, do they? Where I can watch pornography on my screen and no one sees. Well, God does. God not only sees, but God judges. And confession is, I have sinned against God and God only. You see, when it's we understand that we've sinned against God, that we understand that God has seen and God is the judge, God judges. 
God judges not only those things that men are unable to judge and can't judge, but he judges all of our behavior. He passes sentence on it. And the sentence that God passes is either sin or not. And that, you see, David understands, makes his position very precarious, as it were, before God. It places him before God, who sees and who judges as guilty. You see, that too is different than the things that may weigh us down by our behavior. We may feel a sort of guilt, a sort of badness, because we've hurt someone, or maybe because it's a sort of shame. We thought we were more powerful than this, but we, we really weren't. But that's not the real guilt of sin. The real guilt of sin is the understanding that I, I have spit in the face of, stabbed, wounded, slandered, and lied to God. And God saw, and God sees, and God infallibly judges it all. That's brought out even in the last part of the text when he says that God might be justified when he speaks and clear when he judges. There you see what is lying behind in the part of this confession, I've sinned against God only. He knows God is going to speak. And that speech that God makes has to do with his judgment. And God will speak and judge because God has seen That too belongs to our confession of sin before God. That all of our words and all of our thoughts and all of our actions stand before God. They're seen by God, they're known by God, and God judges them. Why do we fail to think that? Why do we fail to see that? Why do we fail to understand that? And the answer again is because we're always far too concerned about what others can see or don't see. It's really not sin unless others see it. It's not really sin unless it's exposed. It's not really vile unless, well, my peers think so too. And then pretty, pretty soon sin is not sin. And we can engage in the most vile behavior in private and imagine all is well with God. Great question always for us is not what others see and what others think or even what I see and what I think. But it's what God sees. What God sees. Do you recognize what a fool we make of God when we pretend he doesn't see and he don't know. You see how we pile up sin against sin? There was a time where that was David. That was David with the people. If only he could hide the sin from the people, then he was good. If only he could hide it from coming out in public, then he was okay. Then he could go on. He could live his life. Everything was just fine and dandy until God brought him to the realize, through the prophet, through the word of God, no, David, you sinned against me. You see, Your approval of me and my behavior and your condemnation of me and my behavior don't matter. This is what we have to come to grips with. For us, it's really the only thing that matters. Oh, we don't want that to be known because then others are going to think this and they're going to think that. What you think, either for or against, 
doesn't matter. I may, in my own self-delusion, still hiding my sin and not confessing them before God, be quite content to hear you say, I forgive you. But the fact is, it doesn't matter. You can forgive me all you want. It doesn't matter. It also doesn't matter if you would continue condemning me. Your approval can't save me, and your disapproval can't condemn me. That's not the issue. That's not our concern when it comes to sin. The issue is God. What does God think? And how does God judge? And what does he say? That is the important thing. And we must understand that that's the important thing because that's the only thing that can bring peace and calm and joy. There's a purpose in all this. This is my final point tonight, a purpose in this confession. And it's quite shocking what that purpose is not. Now, I said earlier that there is a relationship, an inseparable relationship between confession and repentance. You can't have repentance without confession. And I hope I've demonstrated that you can't have confession without confession that our sin is against God only. And certainly there's an inseparable relationship also between confession, repentance, and forgiveness. That is, after all, the connection that David himself makes. His plea is basically a plea, Lord, forgive me. Wash me. Cleanse me. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is before me. But there is something striking about when he comes to finally confess his sin. I have sinned against thee only. The purpose and the reason he gives is not so I may be forgiven. That to make us sit up and take notice because that's usually the reason we confess our sin too, isn't it? I suppose we sit here and we look at this and we say that's the word of God and that's where I failed so miserably and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to commit to confessing my sin to God and pray that God helps me to see it more and more and certainly that is all good and true and, and certainly to pray that God forgive us that's not the reason David gives for saying that. It's this. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Now if you understand, David isn't talking there about justification. When he talks about God being justified when he speaks, he's not talking about so that God may justify me, that is, forgive me. That's not what he's talking about at all. And it ought to be equally clear that David isn't talking about himself. David isn't saying, Lord, forgive me so that I may be forgiven, so that I might be saved, so I might know that salvation that I might have forgiveness and no forgiveness, that I might have peace in my soul, certainly valid concerns, again, true, real, good. But how often in confession is what David adds completely, entirely missing from our own thought? Notice in the first place, even as he confessed his sin was only against God, his reason for making that confession is only about God too that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and that thou mightest be clear when thou judgest. What is he talking about? David is talking about, in the first place, God condemning his sin. Literally, we read, so that God is righteous in speaking and pure 
in his judgment. That's literally how it reads in the original. So that God is righteous in speaking and pure in his judgment. Now put it all together. The idea is that God's going to judge, and God's going to judge his behavior, and God's going to judge his behavior. And David has an interest that God be shown to be God in all that. The idea is that the absolute pureness of God's righteousness, the absolute holiness of God be revealed in his judgment of David's own behavior. You see, God's judgment is his spoken word of condemnation, and it carries with it his exacting punishment of what that sin deserves. That's what God does. God not only sees, God not only observes, but God says, this is what this is. And this is what it deserves. And God is speaking that. And God says that. And God judges that continually because of who He is, the righteous and the Holy One. And David's purpose in confessing his sin, and that his sin against, is against God only, is so that that might be revealed, that might be known, to show that God has both the right to judge and that his judgment is right. Again, not our concern. That's not our concern when we deal with sin. That's not the concern of the natural man. We might be interested in how righteous your judgment is of what I have and your condemnation or approval or the church's But the repentant sinner not only understands that God alone is the one who judges and has the right to judge, but understands that's who God is. That these are part of the perfections of God. This is what makes God God and what makes God great and God glorious. This is one of the reasons, people of God, why sin can run so rampant sometimes in the church. This is why you can have it in the church where certain sins are well known. They used to be sins, but no longer. And perhaps even tolerated, if not promoted, under the love of God that is the modern church today. Only know God as the God of love. And if that's the only thing we know about God, then there's one thing that's going to be certain, and that is pretty soon we can do whatever we want. The repentant sinner knows God as he is and knows God is a righteous God, and he loves that righteousness of God. You see how this tells us something about the repentant sinner? This is true of us when we come to repentance, when we know repentance. This is an indicator of it. You see, prior to repentance, all we're really concerned about is, well, what do I have coming in your judgment? or the church's judgment, or what they say, or that, what's going to happen to me from this perspective, or that perspective in time with regard to my body and my life. That's all we're concerned about, really. How can we keep the lid on this? Or how can I keep this away from others? How can I keep the punishment to a minimum? But the repentant sinner says, no, I've sinned against God. And my concern is what God thinks and what God has says and what God judges and the sentence that God judges. And more than that, knows and confesses that the judgment of God is upon all of our behavior is worthy of hell. See, again, there's our problem. I can sharpen my tongue 
and I can slay you with my tongue, cut you to a thousand ribbons and walk away and never even hardly think about it because in my mind that's, well, you had it coming. You deserved it. And we have a thousand different ways to take our sins and make them small in the judgment of others and pretty soon not even sins at all. But God's not that way. God sees and hears the one little word of slander against your neighbor. And in his righteousness, he says, you deserve to go to hell. That's what you deserve. And the repentant sinner understands that. And when he understands that, he doesn't spend his time justifying what he's doing then either, right? That's what we do. We say, well, I meant good. I had good intentions. We, we, we want to shave the edges. I was really not that bad. The question is again, what does God think? And furthermore, Notice again, the sinner confesses here that he sins against God only because he wants that to be the truth that is held up and extolled, to be revealed and shown. Next of all, and related to that, of course, is then also that God mightest be true and pure and right when God forgives. This is really the more amazing part of this and what ties it all together. Because if you look at all this up until now, sort of, in a certain way, and say, well then why would we ever, ever come to God and admit that? reason is, implied of course by the context, that the sinner expects, the repentant sinner expects, based on the mercy and grace of God, to hear another word from this very same God who is so righteous in his judgments that he says that. That which everybody else says okay, that which everybody else may not even know about, I condemn, and not only just condemn the sin, but the sinner too, let's notice that, I have sinned. I have sinned. I'm the sinner who stands before the face of God, and I must hear the verdict of God, understands that that very same God will say, no sin. Nothing to see here. No unrighteousness whatsoever. Murder of Uriah, didn't see it. Adultery of Bathsheba, not there. And that's what he has to hear, you see. If the repentant sinner or the sinner doesn't hear that, then he's still under the burden of his guilt. He's still under that weight. He still has no peace before God. He must hear God say that. And God has to be right about that too, just about that too, righteous in that regard too. And you say, how can that be? Well, now we come to the thing that the repentant sinner, the truly repentant sinner, adores and loves more than anything else, which is that is true only because God took all of that sin and punished it in another. That's the only reason, the only explanation. You know why it is that we can often sin so much against God? The answer is because we don't think much of his cross. We don't think much of his son, Jesus Christ. And we don't think much of that because, well, we really haven't sinned against God only. See that? Why is it that we can live in sin, cover up addictions, 
engage in vile behavior again and again and again. The answer is because we don't think much of his cross, so we don't think much of his cross because we don't, well, we don't have sin. Not much, just a little. And so you have a little cross and you have a little Christ. But turn around now and acknowledge the truth of the matter. My life is sin. And sin against God and sin against God only. And it's that God now before whom I stand. That one who sees, that one who knows, and that one who exactly because of who he is took all of that vile, gross, wicked behavior and took the punishment himself. And you see, that is what the repentant sinner is concerned about. Not himself as such, not others as such, not even his sin or his confession as such. His faith is on God, who God is, what God thinks, what God judges. And he loves this God because the greater you see is the righteousness of God, the greater is his love and his grace and his mercy. So I pray with you that that may be our own life. That we live our life not hiding our sin, minimizing our sin, or even being content with well, what others think about it and what we've said to others and confessing that. Confess our sins against God. Put on your own lips that which the Spirit put in David's lips. I have sinned against thee only have I sinned. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our God and Father in heaven, we have sinned. We have sinned greatly against thee. We desire even to know that more and more about our lives. We spend our lives pretending we are not sinners, or our sins are small, or sins are only against others, that they are hidden and not known, that they are not judged. We pray, Father, for grace to confess our sins, and that our sins are sins against thee and thee alone. And we pray therefore too then that we might know the great forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ for those sins, and thy pouring out of thy wrath upon him, and the great glory of thy forgiveness and thy judgment of us in him, so that we may have peace and calm in our own souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.